Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Uh, so we're in a series called Life in the Big City, and uh, so we're learning we're citizens of heaven, and we're on this journey toward that city in eternity. And uh, we experience this heavenly reality as we live it out in community. We actually experience it now. And, um, and we, we experience it with others who've experienced grace. And we need each other to get there. Uh, Hebrews is teaching us. And we will live in a rich, robust community when we arrive. Now, in the meantime, we're a new society and a new uh, people, a city ourselves here on earth, and we have, as you would expect, uh, different values than, than the city here. And we've been learning about these specific values. We've seen that uh, Hebrew challenges us to have community over sort of individualistic mentality or individualism, uh, that uh, sexual purity is to characterize us and not sexual immorality. And then we started last week learning that financial identity and security come, uh, where our security is in God, not in finances. And so the overall sort of lesson we're learning that I want us to keep in mind in Hebrews is that uh, spiritual experience is not abstract. It's not just sort of this pie in the sky, out there city, one day we'll get there and we'll all be doing what we ought to be doing. The truth of the matter is, is that because we're citizens of that city there, it actually affects how we operate, our relationships, our interpersonal dynamics, um, our sexuality, uh, our finances. And so last week, we've looked at a number of these, we began to look at how our values change in regard to finances. God changes our loves. He changes our desires and he changes our fears and it changes our priorities. Um, And so in case you're just joining us, uh, just so you know, this is not a series about money. Um, In case you were thinking this is your last Sunday, in case you visited, we are... You're just looking at the end of Hebrews, just 32 verses. Two of them just happen to be right here uh, on the topic of money. And two verses on money is enough, of course, to give you plenty of angst. Um, But I just want to assure you that that's not the case. Uh, And so it made me think about a few of the different groups that might be in here when you hear money in church. Um. It's very easy if you're a minister or a ministry to manipulate people financially. It's, just, it's very easy to do. And you, you may be here and have seen it, or maybe you've experienced it firsthand. Somebody used you or cheated you, pulled the wool over your eyes, taught you something that wasn't true. And so it, 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 when you hear that topic in church, it just... Something happens to you on the inside. You should just shut down. I understand. I wish I could apologize for whoever did that. Uh, The other group in here is the financially inept group. You've never managed money well, and every time you hear the topic, you say you're going to, but you never do. 
And so what you feel when money comes up in church is this sort of self-condemnation. And so you're just sort of mad at yourself and you could tune the whole subject out. The other group in here is is the truly financially overwhelmed. Uh, Circumstances, experiences, whatever, have you truly in a financial difficulty. Um, I know some of you. Um, And you're legitimately hurting. And then there's... Uh, the rest of us, who I think there's most of us, um, who have all we need and probably more. And so you got all these groups in here um, hearing about the topic of money and what Hebrews has to say applies to every single one of those groups. Because money is so powerful and so valuable, we can easily love it too much. And it doesn't matter if you have it or not. Um, One thing we can never do, and Hebrews is reminding us of that, is imagine or think to ourselves that money has little or no impact in or on our spiritual life. And so no matter what your circumstances are, you cannot tune it out and be a person who's on this journey to that city. One of the marks of a community that's on their way to that city is their relationship to material things changes. That's a given. So we have to face it no matter what situation we find ourselves in today. Uh, It's the next best thing to God. Maybe you haven't heard it said that way. But just knowing and thinking that way means my heart could easily be deceived. Scriptures tell us this is true. Maybe that's another reason we don't like it. And to sort of maybe make this clearer, especially in the context of our topic I, um, I want to show you this, this proverb. I really uh, love this, Proverbs 18, 10, and 11. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Remember, the strong towers, whenever we're talking about a city, it's city language. The strong towers, towers were on city walls, and that's how you protected your city. It was the only way to be protected in that day. So what he's making an allusion to is that God's character is a strong tower, righteous they, they know it and they run to it and they find their security and safety. So he's using city image. Uh, of course, this would be an invisible city like, like the one we're sort of moving toward. But look at verse 11. The very next verse says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. So in the mind of the person who has wealth or wants it, he sees that there's a strength he could have if he had wealth. Because money's the other option. And so what, he, what we mean by strong city, how does a, 
how do we use money to be our strong city? Well, there's a there's two things really. First Timothy six outlined these pretty nice, but there's two things that happen to people with wealth or who want wealth. They have a false sense of self. If you have a lot of resources, you can you can consider yourself better than other people. There's an arrogance. And then, of course, there's a false sense of security. So you can think you're better than other people, but you can also think that you're uh, um, impenetrable. That you can just about handle anything. And it's, it's subtle and very deceptive. Um, because money's that powerful. It can provide you stuff and things that we call out to God for. It can uh, give you power. It can give you security. A certain kind of security. It gives, people with money have say in things. Um, you can feel important and value, valuable because of it. And it works the other way too. Um, and of course, we've all experienced it. I, I have you know, a story that came to my mind this week when I was thinking about this and some other things I'm going to tell you. Um, when Gail and I were about 29, we had had our first child. He was, Anthony was one. Um, somebody in our youth group, because we were, you know, hauling kids around all the time, gave us a Dodge Ram van. And it was one of those older ones, as square as it could be. It was like driving a shopping center is really what it was. And so uh, it didn't have any seats in it. And so we had to go to the junkyard to put the chairs, the seats in it. It was a cargo van. And uh, it turned out to be a vehicle we could use not only for ministry, but also to haul around, you know, now the kids in the growing family. So um, the seats in it were blue and different color blue. And then the, uh, but the van itself was a copper color. It looked like a big penny driving down the road. Is about what it was worth, I think. Uh, it was actually a great vehicle. Uh, we were very blessed to have it. And so um, about at that time, somebody had given us at Christmas time a, a gift card for Gail and I to go to the mansion in Dallas. It's a very sort of high-end restaurant. But we had no idea what it was. We waited a long time to use it, almost a year. We decided one Sunday night that we were going to go down there. We didn't dress appropriately. We had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. And so uh, I want to show you uh, what it's like to pull up to this place. It's got a circle drive. Uh, this is the front entrance here, and you come down the road, and you, well, the road was backed up back here. And when you get up to the front, this is what it looks like. And they valet park you right here. And this, this whole circle drive is this wide. And cars were literally lined up like this, and it looked like we were in Tokyo in traffic. We were sitting way back here, just waiting to get in. Now we're in this copper-colored van, and there was only three color cars there, black, white, and gray. And they were all fancy, and none of them sat up as high as our van did. <laughs> and so we're sitting in the middle of this, and every, with every car that slowly moves, getting us closer to this valet, we are feeling more and more like we are not supposed to be here. And it's just taking forever to get there. And finally, my wife, as we get to about right here, right as we're coming into the circle here, and this sidewalk just comes around. Gail decides she can't handle it anymore. And she goes, I got to get out of this car. I can't be in here. 
I go, where are you, where are you going? She literally gets out from the side and crawls out the side of the, the van and gets onto the sidewalk and leaves me in this thing by myself. So she's walking up the sidewalk and I've got to go. And I'm just sitting here, look like I'm, everybody just thinks I'm probably delivering something. That's what it looks like. And I get, I get to the front and uh, the guy comes around to me and I'm like, I'm apologizing to him that he has to take this car. And I said, listen, on the way back, when you go get this car, you won't be able to come in the store. I can open it from the inside, <laughs> but you won't be able to do that. Uh, you'll have to come to the side of the van and get in that way. Just remember that. Okay. Oh, and by the way, my wife is over there walking on the sidewalk. That's her. She didn't want to be in here anymore. I just, I didn't want to leave her out. I said, That's her right there. I'd point her out. Because it's just, it, it, there's that kind of, you get a sense, a weird sense of who you are around money. And anyway, uh, that's what's happening in this text here. And see, this, this strong city is his high wall. It's how he gets his protection. And you can, you can build a sort of a high wall. But what he says here is a great word right here. It's, it's in his imagination. Because um, money can make you delusional. Uh, it's seductive. It can blind you to reality. You, you can't distinguish what's real from what isn't real. Uh, do you have imaginations about money? You ever daydream about it? You daydream about winning? The, I, I've daydreamed about winning the lotto. I don't play it. <laughs> do you, th- you know, the odds of winning the lotto anyway are really, really bad. <laughs> if you don't play it, they're exponentially worse. <laughs> But your brain can play tricks on you. Um, And that's one of the wonders of Hebrews and the spiritual life and and what Christ teaches us. Is it teaches us how to to see what is real and what isn't real. So we don't live in some fake imaginary secure world. My favorite illustration of this, and I've given you, I've shown you this video before. But every time I think of this dynamic going on in scripture I think of this video it's a dog food commercial I've shown it to you before I want you to just watch it and then I'll uh... you ready go get it it's getting harder to tell what's real Nutro is real natural dog food see the difference at Nutro.com isn't that an incredible you just see this beautiful scene and she throws that thing and it turns out to just be made of paper. And that's kind of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It all feels extremely real, but it turns out to be nothing. And dog food has figured out how hard it is to know the difference between what's real and what isn't. Um, and what the writer of Hebrews is saying is what you can't see is more real than what you can see. Derek Kidney, who's a writer, uh, um, commentary on Proverbs, has, he says, the world thinks that the unseen is the unreal. But it is not the man of God, but the man of means who must draw on his imagination to feel secure. That's a great line. So it's easy to be duped by money. Uh, it can distract 
from the soul's true cravings. And that's why Jesus talked about it a lot. He said, because you, you, you can easily find in money what you must find in me. Uh, so money confronts the fundamental structure of our, of, of, of our souls and our need. And so if God is in your life, there's no way you're going to relate to money differently or that you're not going to relate to money differently. Something greater is shaping you on the inside. Something, something greater is filling that inner craving so that there's no way you can't be managing resources um, different as a result. And so uh, that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to teach us. And so we looked at Hebrews 5. Remember, it says, your conduct must be free from the love of money. So that's sort of the surface practical piece. You must be content. That goes a little bit deeper than conduct. And then he says, uh, you need to remember God will never, ever, ever leave you. Remember five times he says it's an emphatic negation that's just overwhelming. Maybe one of the most powerful verses in your Bible because of it. The truth and the wonder of the reality that God will never leave you. It's the most important spiritual truth. And so if you kind of break this down, it looks like this. There's a certain kind of conduct, people who live in this in the city or are citizens of the other city and are journeying toward it, they have a certain way that they conduct their lives. But underneath the surface, it's because they have found a kind of contentment in what Christ has done for them. And they realize that they're never alone. He's always with them in all circumstances. And this is the central truth. And if it is, if it is felt and experienced, it cannot help but change what happens on the surface in our actual lives, how we carry them out. Um, so if God is at work in me and through me, there's no way my conduct relating to money is, 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 is not changed by that. So uh, if you look just below the surface, of a guy who's following Christ and is journeying and this truth is happening, then you, you know, you will seek first, you'll see this kind of contentment. And we described it a little bit last week, but I want to give you just two things that I think are important, uh, that grow out of this. Um, one comes from verse six, but the first one here is this contentment. And, and I think a, a great way to describe it is that it settles you. Um, you, you should, you sh- there should be a kind of settling. There's not so much turmoil under the surface because of the truth that God is with us. And you say, what does that mean and look like? And I just have some thoughts for you on that. The first thing is, is that you see through the illusion. You know money is a powerful thing. You know it's a valuable thing here. You know what it can do here, but you know that those things don't ultimately matter. You know that. Um, and so you can see through. Remember Aesop's fable? Remember the little, in one of his fables, the little dog that runs, got the bone in his mouth and he runs. He's, he, he's looking for a place to eat it, a special place in the distance where he can eat his bone. And as he's going, he comes across a little bridge and he catches his shadow and he follows his shadow and he's, 
you know, it's intriguing him and it takes him to the edge of the bridge where he looks down into the reflection of the water and he sees the fact that he's carrying this bone, but he thinks it's another bone in the water. And so he drops his bone, remember? He drops it and then he jumps into the water to get that one. And uh, while he's in the water getting nothing, another creature comes by over the bridge and grabs the bone he had and takes off. And now he's all wet and still hungry. And it was just greed that took him over to that. And the, uh, the story sort of ends with a really eloquent moral. Um, beware lest you lose the substance while grasping at the shadows. And so that's one of the things that, can, that God brings to us is a, is a real sense of, it's may, it may be cool, but it isn't, it isn't essential. Uh, and I can, I can see what it doesn't do. That's one of the things you ought to see. We all see what money can do. It's how well do you see what it, can, what it can't do that changes you. Uh, and of course, the gospel gives us that. Now, Here's some other things that I thought, which you don't, you don't live with this constant need for something else. Do you catch that in you more often than not before you, before you charge out and do something? Uh, do you, do you catch that in you? You find yourself, Hey, easy. And you know how to sit with, with something you really want long enough to see if it's really something you ought to have, maybe even save for it. If you determine that it is something you ought to have. But definitely you're not thinking, I'll even use someone else's money to get it. Because I want it that bad. That kind of thing. There's a kind of settledness in you. We don't just pop from one thing to the next. You know how to sit with a need. Or a want. Before you jump out there and get yourself in a mess. That's what contentment does for you. And so, you know, there's a kind of desperation and disappointment and dissatisfaction that we live with all the time. And you know how to work through that before you go stepping out and doing things. That's what contentment will do for you. Um, you know how to rejoice with other people when they get something maybe you've wanted or maybe they have something or they just get something you didn't know you wanted till they got it. That happens a lot. And you know how to rejoice with them. It doesn't bug you as much. Um, uh, you know how to enjoy things, but they're never the thing. They always point you to something greater and bigger. Um, maybe in line with some of this thinking is you, you don't think of the rich as being evil. How do you view people who have more than you? I heard someone recently say, or describing a wealthy person and said, yeah, they're very, very wealthy. And so not a good person. Uh, and I, wait a minute, What? I mean, if you live in a Christian community, then you're probably around some people who have more than you in that community. Um, 
and they, they may have some of the same stuff you have, like the same car, same, same, same kind of house. Kind of, this is just a little better than yours. And we judge them. And partly it's because we wish we had it. That's the most honest reason. But the other reason is, is we think, wow, I wonder what they're doing with their money. You have no idea what they're doing with their money. It could be very great givers. You know, guy driving a nicer car than you might be able to drive a much nicer car than that, but he chooses not to because he can, because he's a giver. And I know a lot of wealthy people who don't live to their full means. They could live much higher, but they're givers. And so... Uh, you're just, you're just not resentful. I mean, it's possible, and I know you felt it. I know I have felt it too. I'll be really honest. You, you, can, you can be negative. You can have negative feelings, or people have more than you. But you don't know what, what they give, what means they could be living at. Because I'll tell you one of the keys about living content and then a certain kind of conduct. It doesn't matter how much you have. If you live in the kingdom, if I match you with somebody who makes the same amount of money you do, you live in the kingdom and they don't, your life ought to look different than theirs. Because you have values. Because you care about things maybe they don't care about. And it ought to show. And it it shouldn't shock us that sometimes we would say no to some things because we're on our way to a city that really lasts. And, And we just know money can't say this to us. Money can't say, I'll never leave you. Gail said she was at that funeral. She came home and she was just lit up. For the, you know, left about five o'clock in the morning, drive to just around Houston, Katy area somewhere. And then five hours back, long day. When she got in, I expected her to be just wiped out. And she was so excited about this three-hour funeral that 600 people attended. He was a veterinarian in the town. And... Um, Everybody was saying such great things. And at the end of this sort of segment, the last person to speak was his best friend. He's a 64-year-old man, father of Katie Sandifer here, and um, had a heart attack right after dinner, right in his car. They were in separate cars. His wife got home. He never made it. And so uh, the friend got up, and the way he ended the whole thing was he just asked a few questions and made people raise their hands. How many of you got to be on his farm and eat there? And he cooked for you, almost everybody. And how many of you, uh, you know, took your dogs or your animals to him? How many of you did he help you? Blah, blah, blah. The last question he asked was, how many of you did he take care of your animals at no cost? Somewhere between 75% and 90% of people went like that. You're like, whew. He's probably a, a, a man of maybe a little more means than some of us. And you might not have ever thought. I wonder how generous that guy is. G- generous. And, you know, he's gone now and it doesn't matter what he has. This is what matters now. Was God with you? And I think that's what Hebrews is trying to teach us. The second thing comes out of, right out of verse six, uh, because it says, well, what, what is a person who feels like this? Uh, how, do they, how do they respond to reality? What should it be? Well, here's verse six uh, right here. So 
People who are free from the love of money, have a conduct that's free from the love of money, who are content with what they have, because they know, Deuteronomy and Joshua 1, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So we, we, that's us, people who know that, who've experienced that, have a kind of confidence. They speak with a kind of confidence. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can people do to me? So here's another verse. Here's two verses that quote, really, at least three, maybe four Old Testament verses. And it's really interesting the way the scripture's used in Hebrews, the Old Testament. Uh, because the first use of the Old Testament will tell you what is the truth, like our verse, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then the second verse is actually the response. It's a verse that shows what we ought to be saying. Here's the verse we ought to be living like. And that's the same thing that happens in Hebrews 10. You can, you can, you can look at this. It's great, especially at Christmas time. So here's how the writer of Hebrews uses it for Jesus. So in chapter 10, you have this incredible conversation about Jesus as the high priest and, and he's gonna come and this, the, the Old Testament sacrifices for sin aren't gonna be enough. And so he, uh, he says to the, um, he says, right before Jesus came into the world, you say, what kind of conversation did God and Jesus have before he came here at Christmas time, before he came into the world? And Hebrews gives us a picture into it. What it does is it quotes Psalm 40 to give what what was said and then how Jesus responded. And here's what he says. When he came into the world, he said, this is what my father told me, sacrifice and offerings you don't need. You don't want sacrifices and offerings. You've, You've prepared a body for me. The Old Testament sacrifices of animals are not gonna be enough to handle sin. So you've given me a body. And whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, you took no delight in. They're not enough. It's so beautiful. Then I said, this is Jesus speaking. Then I said, still quoting Psalm 40, verses six to eight. Here I am. I have come. It is written of me in the scroll of the book to do your will, O God. Here I am. I'll do it. You, you name it. You say it. I'll do it. And that's exactly what is happening here in Hebrews. The Old Testament text tells us the truth that God will never leave us. And then the Old Testament text actually gives us the right response to it, which is the Lord's my helper. I will not be afraid. I'll be confident. This word right here, confidence, just means to act boldly. It's just any person you see walking around with a kind of courage that that moves them into reality. Um, That's the appropriate response to this. You say, what should a person who's journeying toward the ultimate city, who's part of a community, who God is with, and they're content, and they're not in love with money, how do they live in the kingdom? They're bold. They're bold for God. Financially. That's completely different than the things we say to each other. Well, I'm broke, I'm short, I don't have, you know, I can't, I don't have, where's the, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to do it. There's very little confidence. Uh, very little boldness. Now, I understand this because I'm a six on the Enneagram. Uh, 
And if you haven't taken the Enneagram, it's just a, a really cool way to determine the person. It's extremely accurate. Books are written on it. It's, companies use it. It's pretty powerful. Um, uh, because you can see in here, God's changing your loves and he's changing your fears. Um, and sixes on the Enneagram, they can just see the worst case scenario. I've had Kirk Nower, you know, who's helped us through, uh, who's helped us through major campaigns here for the buildings that we're doing. Look right at me. This was years ago when we first did that, when we did this building, right before this building was ever built. I was so nervous. And he looked at me and said, you know, I work with pastors all across the country. I've never met one as scared of you about everything. (laughs) This is a guy I know and love. He goes, would you stop being scared of everything? Because he's scared of nothing. He's a nutcase. I mean, a nutcase. And he looks at me, he's scared of everything. Yeah, I'm a six on the Enneagram. That's why. You know, we just see the worst case scenario. For a whole year, I had Hebrews 13, 5, and 6, these verses, uh, sticky noted to my mirror. They fell off about a year ago. But they were on there for a year. And I memorized Hebrews 13, 5, and 6. Because if you're a six on the Enneagram and afraid of everything, you need God to constantly be working on you and to hear this truth that he's your helper and you don't have to be afraid in order to be bold in the kingdom. And so, I mean, I was just pouring it into my head. Now, people who are uh, doing this, people who are living like this, people who are bold like this, they know, they know two things. And I want to tell you what those two things are. Number one, they know they're going to lose out here. Um, let's see if I can get this thing to come up. They know on this journey to this city, they cannot have everything here. Some of the things they have, they're going to lose. It's just, it's just part of the reality of the journey and there's just no way to get around it. If you've chosen to follow Christ and you've chosen to be in a community of people that you love and care about and you're headed to an eternal city, there's just no way you're not gonna have to give up some of the stuff maybe you valued before. There's just no way. Um, so if you've chosen that life, you know it's gonna cost you. And um, it's just the journey I'm in on. So do you feel that? Yeah, I'm on this journey, and I know what it's going to cost me. Um, you know my sort of, and this is a story I read years and years ago. Annie Dillard wrote an essay called The Expedition to the Pole. And you know my fascination with the North Pole and the South Pole and, the, and the, the, the weather and the treacherous journey it would take to get there. I think it's because I'm, I, I mean, I just hate the cold so much and I just can't fathom anybody doing something so ridiculous. I'm cold now. I'm freezing right now. I might as well be in the Arctic right now. And so I'm fascinated by it. And she had written this little thing. You'll love this. Her, if you haven't ever read that essay, it's an essay. And she's comparing her church to an expedition to the pole. It's the Franklin expedition in 1845. Captain Sir John Franklin. They wrote and made a movie about it called The Terror. Uh, this guy from Britain, going to head out and try to find the Northwest Passage and uh, takes two ships, roughly 130 guys. I've read different 
things, 129, 134 people. None of them make it back. None of them survive. And she's writing about it because, uh, because she's comparing this story. And here's the thing about them. They leave Britain, leave England, and they're heading up there. And uh, they did not take what they needed for the journey. Uh, and I love the things that they took. Think about this. This is some of the, they took no special equipment or even special clothing for it. Um, they took trappings of their Victorian civilization. Get this. They took an organ. China, silver service, glassware, dress uniforms. Uh, she writes this, each sailing vessel carried an auxiliary steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal for the entire projected two, two or three-year voyage. Instead of additional coal, each ship made room for a 1,200-volume library, a hand organ playing 50 tunes, China place settings for the officers and men, cut glass wine goblets and sterling silver flatware. And no special clothing for the Arctic, only the uniforms, uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. Of course, they all, you know, they didn't make it. They got stuck. They got stuck and had to go on foot. And what they did was they took all those precious valuables and put them in the lifeboats and drugged them. And the Inuit Eskimos eventually uncovered their bodies. And when they did, they found these skeletons holding the silver plates it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen it's one of the craziest stories but it's always given me that sense of you know we can be on this journey if you're on a journey to the Arctic you better have what you need you better know what you need on that journey and the thing about people who follow Christ and are on the journey to the eternal city they know what they don't need and they've arranged their life such that they can invest in eternity because they know a lot of this stuff's not going to be healthy. It's just going to hold them back and eventually maybe even kill them. It's an incredible story. And so you know you're going to lose out. People who are on this journey, they know they're going to lose out. And so with boldness, they set out, taking only what they need. And the second thing is they realize that even though they are going to lose things, they can't lose the things that matter the most. They cannot lose the things that matter the most. You know, this verse where he says, uh, the Lord's my helper and I will not be afraid. What can people do to me? Well, people can do a lot to you. And these people in the, of the Hebrews were, were experiencing, these Hebrews were experiencing it. Uh, because they were in a community and they would be found out that they were Christians, they were persecuted. So many of them stopped coming to the community. That's a big part of what Hebrews is about. Because on that way to the journey, you need to be in community and community is demanding. It demands everything of me. And they were avoiding community because they didn't want their stuff taken. And see, here's what, they've, here's what you learn when you're following Christ. It's going to be taken one way or another. It's either going to be taken by somebody because you follow Jesus or you're going to give it away. 
One way or another, you can't hold on to it. And they know it. So, ultimately, they can't lose the things that matter the most. Whatever you imagine you can have with a lot of money, it can be lost. But the things that matter the most cannot be. And I think the man who just passed away would be, if he could, if he could say something to us right now, he'd, he'd reassure all of us. So let me just close with two quick applications to maybe two groups in here. The first group in here I want to speak to, I'm part of. Uh, you would say, I don't live boldly enough in the kingdom. I just don't live boldly enough. Now I can tell you that I live a little more boldly financially than I did 20 years ago and 10 years ago. But not boldly enough. Um, And so maybe you need that challenge. You're scared of everything too. And when it comes to, to... Investing in the kingdom or doing things for the kingdom or sharing or seeing, seeing things lost to this world or whatever is just really hard on you. And you need boldness. You know, he quotes that verse is from Psalm 118. Uh, um, Psalm, 118, Psalm 118 basically says this. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. And here's the verse he quotes. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's these two things that I love the image of. Because the word distress is this idea of constrained. Where you're hemmed in and you just feel crushed. You feel um, strangled by circumstances. Claustrophobic almost. It's this feeling of you just can't move. And a lot of us financially feel that way. But he finds God and God begins to set him free, begins to open him up from that, begins to loosen him. The word literally means wide open spaces. That God gives you a spacious way to to move toward eternity, not so constrained, but a little more you know, open. And it can only come because of what he does for us. Because we're not afraid. Because he's with us. So maybe that's you. You need more boldness. And the other group in here is the group that's been duped. You've just been duped by money. I mean, all your life, you just have had your eye on that other thing that would just change everything for you and you just can't help it. You can't let it go. And to some degree, your soul has been deceived and it's caused you lots of angst. Because money can do that. It can dupe your soul. Your soul is like a junk receptacle. It, it can take anything and, 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 and use it, but it just consumes it and the soul never really gets what it needs the most. And so maybe that's you. You've gotten a lot, maybe. But it's, it's not enough. Psalm 118 is quoted a lot in your New Testament, this chapter right here that the writer of Hebrews uses for us. 
It's quoted in all four Gospels. And it's quoted the week before Easter. Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides in on a donkey. Not a Lexus, a donkey. Rides in on a donkey, humility. And out of Psalm 118, they quote, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's just referring to him. And you look at him and you'd think, ah, doesn't look like a king to me. It's because he did what he's asking us to do in Hebrews. He set aside everything, became bold for his father. Then he said confidently, I will do your will. And he boldly, with humility, went right to a cross for us. And the only way you're ever going to be bold is to see the humble boldness of our own Savior who did that for us. He's the stone, Psalm 118 says, that was rejected, that the builders rejected. If you're trying to build a life and you reject the one key stone that makes it all possible, the cornerstone that lines it and gives it its strength. And at the end of the day, no matter what you've built, it won't matter. And that's why I like to refer at this kind of moment to the great theologian Prince. (laughs) Years ago, I was watching an interview with him before he passed away, obviously. And um, he brought up a song that I had never heard and still to this day never looked up and tried to find. All he did was quote the words and I remember writing them down. I've never heard the song. Some people came up to me afterwards to tell me the song. Here's the words of those songs. Money don't matter tonight. It sure didn't matter yesterday. As soon as you think you've got more than enough, that's when it up and flies away. That's when you know that you're better off Making sure your soul's all right. Making sure your soul's all right. That's a great word. He was a great pastor, wasn't he? He was a great pastor. (laughs) Maybe that's you. Your soul's been duped and you've never put your trust in Christ. You've trusted in stuff. Well, let's bow our heads. We need, we need Christ and we need boldness today. Father, thank you for your word. I pray you'll open our hearts to, to make a decision today, decide something, do something in this whole arena to make sure that we're not carrying things we don't need on our way to you. We want to be more bold, Lord. Help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.